This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 101, for broadcast on the 21st of December, 2018. Coming up on Space Time. Water discovered on the asteroid Bennu. Russian spacewalkers gathering evidence over the Soyuz capsule air leak. And the green comet 46P with Tannen puts on a show. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. New data from NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has found evidence of water locked inside clays on the asteroid Bennu. During the mission's approach phase between mid-August and early December, researchers aimed three of the spacecraft's instruments towards Bennu and began making the mission's first scientific observations towards the asteroid. OSIRIS-REx is NASA's first asteroid sample return mission. Data obtained from the spacecraft's two spectrometers revealed the presence of molecules containing oxygen and hydrogen atoms bonded together, known as hydroxyls. The team suspects that these hydroxyl groups existed globally across the asteroid in water-bearing mineral clays, meaning that at some point Bennu's rocky material interacted with water. While Bennu itself is too small to have hosted liquid water, the findings do suggest that liquid water would have been present at some time on Bennu's parent body, OSIRIS-REx Visible and Infrared Spectrometer Investigator Amy Simon from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, says the presence of hydrated minerals across the asteroid confirms that Bennu is the remnant of an early solar system and therefore an excellent candidate for studies into the composition of primitive volatiles and organics. When samples of this material are returned to Earth in 2023, scientists will receive a treasure trove of new information about the history and evolution of our solar system. The new data coming from OSIRIS-REx also confirms earlier ground-based observations about the half-kilometre-wide asteroid's diameter, rotational rate, inclination and overall shape. One outlier from the predicted shape model is the size of a large boulder near Bennu's South Pole. The original ground-based shape model calculated the boulder to be around 10 metres across. But the new observations from OSIRIS-REx show it to be much larger, more like 55 metres. Bennu's surface material is a mix of very rocky boulder-filled regions sparsely interspersed with a few relatively smooth areas. Overall, the number of boulders on Bennu's surface is far higher than expected. Mission managers will continue to make observations at closer ranges in order to accurately assess where a good sample can be taken from Bennu for later return to Earth. OSIRIS-REx Principal Investigator Dante Loretta from the University of Arizona in Tucson says initial data shows the spacecraft is healthy and all its science instruments are working nominally. OSIRIS-REx is currently performing a preliminary survey of the asteroid in order to determine its mass. It does this by flying over Bennu's North Pole, Equator and South Pole at altitudes down to just 7 kilometres above the surface. Mission managers need to know the exact mass of the asteroid in order to correctly plan the spacecraft's orbital insertion. That's because the mass of the asteroid will affect its gravitational pull on the spacecraft. Knowing Bennu's mass will also help the science team better understand the asteroid's structure and composition. Now that the spacecraft's in close proximity to Bennu, the survey's providing the first opportunity for OSIRIS-REx's laser altimeter to make its observations. Right now, the probe's first orbital insertion is slated for December 31st. 
It'll then remain in orbit until mid-February 2019, when it exits to initiate another series of flybys for the next survey phase. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. The federal government has chosen the South Australian capital of Adelaide as home for Australia's new space agency. The facility will be built in a new innovation and technology hub now being developed on the site of the old Royal Adelaide Hospital in the city centre. The new agency will provide a one-stop shop for the local Australian space industry. The choice of Adelaide's interesting because as the national capital, Canberra was widely regarded as the most likely choice for Space HQ. Then again, the nation's largest city, Sydney, is facing a state election in less than 100 days' time, and so it was also looking like a strong contender. One of the big pluses for Sydney is that it was offering a new greenfield site in the aerospace hub now being built around the city's multi-billion dollar Western Airport project. And of course, Queensland should have been another strong contender as well, especially as it's the only Australian state currently developing an orbital rocket launch system. But the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison says he was listening when the South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall called him and said, beam me up, Scotty. Of course, South Australia is home to the Woomera Rocket Range, the location where Australia became only the fourth nation on Earth to launch a domestically built satellite into orbit from its own soil. These days, Woomera is mostly a Defence Department missile range, with only the occasional sounding rocket launching into space. Adelaide nano-satellite company Fleet Space Technologies, local boy and former NASA astronaut Andy Thomas, and the state's biggest promoter, Defence Minister and local Member of Parliament Christopher Pine, have undoubtedly all played a role in that final decision. Of course, the Australian Space Agency won't be the sort of grandiose operation we've come to see from NASA or the European Space Agency. In fact, just $41 million in seed funding and 20 jobs will be created at the new headquarters. But Canberra hopes the agency will act as a launching pad, eventually tripling Australia's space economy to more than $12 billion and creating some 20,000 jobs by 2030. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Dr Fred Watson. The Australian Space Agency, where are they going to put it? The Australian Space Agency will be located in the fine city of Adelaide in South Australia. Several other cities put in bids. I think perhaps one of the strongest came from Canberra, the federal capital. But Adelaide has a long history of connection with space because, of course, South Australia is the home of the Woomera base, which when I was growing up in the 50s was a household word. Woomera was where all the rockets were being tested and it was a very exciting place. Mm. And, uh, and, and there for are those, those uh, listening overseas who uh, haven't heard the word Woomera, it's actually an Aboriginal uh, kind of weapon. It's used to launch spears to give them more velocity and distance. So yeah, that's, that's right. why it's called Woomera. Indeed, that's right. Mm. Um, and that gave... South Australia head start back in the 50s and 60s. But there's also a strong contingent in the academic world in South Australia, as well as a lot of startup industries. But I think the thing that might have actually tipped it over the line is the fact that the Australian astronaut who has flown the most... Andy Thomas. That's the man, yes. Andy Thomas, yeah. He's from South Australia, of course. Yes, he is, yeah. yeah. He was so, in this uh, region a few years ago and we got to have a chat to him uh, on my former radio station and, uh, yeah, lovely bloke. Yes, he is. Um, it was a major 
major coup for us to have Andy Thomas. But Andy is a is a passionate uh, Adelaidean, and I think he wrote a very strong case in a document to say Adelaide should host the Australian Space Agency, and government said yes. Well, he knows his stuff, so I suppose he'd have um, a fair bit of influence. And uh, yeah, so what form will it take? Is it just going to be an office block? Yeah, pretty well. Uh, <laughs> and, and not even that. I bet it's just a floor on an office because they're employing a staff of 20. Right. So it's really an administrative thing. Um, they have funds, about $41 million, to distribute in a way that will help to expand the Australian space industry. The, the figures are that the space industry worldwide is worth somewhere between 350 and $400 billion. These are Australian dollars. And we have a share of that something like 1%. It's roughly, you know, something like $4 billion a year that's earned in Australia from the space industry. That's probably more than most people would expect, yeah. but it includes things like communications and satellite technology and lots of things of that sort. So that figure is hoped to be expanded by a factor of three, so that within a few years, we'll be talking about $12 billion. And that's the job of the space agency, to actually nurture those startups and put everything in a common framework and hopefully turn it into this global player that Australia wants to be. That's Dr Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Cosmonauts aboard the International Space Station have undertaken a marathon 7-hour, 45-minute spacewalk, gathering forensic evidence for Roscosmos, the Russian Federal Space Agency, and their investigation into the cause of a hole drilled into the hull of a Soyuz capsule. Back in August, the hole began venting atmosphere into space from the orbital module of the Soyuz MS-9 capsule attached to the International Space Station. The crew eventually located the hole and sealed it using an epoxy resin. This extravehicular activity, or spacewalk, was designed to gather as much evidence about how this hole could have been formed. Spacewalking cosmonauts struggled, but eventually succeeded, in cutting through the module's protective insulation blanket and micrometeor shield, using knives and shears to uncover and reveal the now plugged-up hole. Kononenko will make a 10-inch cut in the thermal insulation, uh, peel that back, and then... Uh cut a piece of debris shield underneath that will expose the hull of the habitation module for his uh, forensic analysis. Like Kononenko, at the end of the Australia boom, as uh, the International Space Station flies 250 miles south of Australia, soon uh, to enter an orbital sunrise over the Pacific Ocean. He, however, has not had much luck uh, getting the correct leverage with his feet in a foot restraint at the end of the Australia boom to be able to uh, utilize uh, a different set of cutters, so he's now back to the knife itself. Four hours, 21 minutes into the spacewalk, Oleg Kononenko, having used a, a cutting tool to make an incision as he continues uh, now to use a knife to uh, cut away thermal insulation and try to get uh, to uh, the orbital uh, meteoroid debris shield underneath that he hopes to be able to cut uh, to expose the hull of the habitation module of the Soyuz for sample collection of any epoxy sealant that may have extruded during the repair of a hole on the inside of the habitation module 
module back on August 29th. This is Mission Control Houston, five hours, 10 minutes into today's spacewalk as uh, Ali Kononenko now begins to use a pair of shears to cut through the uh, debris shield that is underneath all of this insulation, this wide swath of insulation that uh, the crew cut back uh, over the course of the past hour. They then took photos and filmed the damage before scraping up as much residue surrounding the hole as possible. This is Mission Control Houston at the five hour, 20 minute mark in the spacewalk, the Eureka moment where uh, the crew uh, finally saw the area, a small black dot that uh, flight controllers and Karelyov, Russian flight controllers, say uh, represents the area on the external hull where the hole corresponds uh, to the inside of the habitation module that was detected back on August 29th. Uh, now that uh, the crew has uh, cut through the insulation and a portion of the uh, debris shield underneath, peeling all of that back to expose the area that they uh, plan uh, to collect samples from to be put in a special container to be brought back to Earth for analysis by Russian engineers. The EVA was made especially difficult because unlike the space station, the Soyuz spacecraft isn't designed to be repaired during spacewalks and so has no outside railings for cosmonauts to hold on to. The crew are using the same Soyuz MS-9 spacecraft for their return to Earth this week. The hole doesn't pose a problem because it's in the orbital module, which is jettisoned together with the service module after the Soyuz undocks from the space station, leaving the crew strapped into the small central descent module to carry out the atmospheric re-entry and landing. It's thought the hole was most likely drilled accidentally during the spacecraft's construction or later during final assembly at Baikonur. The damage was somehow covered up and the spacecraft passed its pressurization tests. However, Roscosmos investigators say they've already ruled out any accidental damage either during the spacecraft's construction or during its final assembly at Baikonur. If correct, it means they're now looking at deliberate sabotage, either on the ground or possibly even in orbit. Of course, the appearance of this hole in the spacecraft was followed shortly afterwards by the launch ascent failure of another manned Soyuz mission. The crew aboard the Soyuz MS-10 were forced to undertake an emergency high-G ballistic return to Earth when one of the four strap-on liquid-fueled boosters failed to jettison cleanly a minute and 58 seconds after launch, causing the destruction of the Soyuz FG launch vehicle. That failure was eventually traced to a faulty sensor in the separation system on the booster. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you're a sky watcher, you must be feeling pretty sport right now, with two great spectacles lighting up the night skies at the moment. There's the Geminids meteor shower, which has been putting on its annual spectacular. And there's a fuzzy green comet, 45P with Tannin, which is providing its own evening show. Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University says the comet's making a spectacular sight in the east right now, between the Pleiades and the constellation Orion, with best viewing after 11.30 at night. You want to look towards the constellation Orion. So if you can find the constellation Orion, it's hanging out near there. And with a small pair of binoculars or, or telescope, you can really zoom in. And this comet is nice because it's a very brilliant green colour. So it's a brilliant green fuzzy color. And why is Watanen green in color? So this has to do with a bit of its composition. So 
Comets have a lot of ice, water ice, but this comet also has a lot of methane. And so as it goes around the sun, the sun melts it, and it releases the ice and the methane as gas, and that mixes to produce a brilliant green color. And it, this comet has actually been quite of interest to people. Back in the days when the Rosetta probe launched by the European Space Agency was looking for a target, this was actually the original choice to land this probe on. But the mission was a little bit too far behind, so they had to change their target to Comet 67P. Sure, That's right, yeah. And so it's, um, you know, it, it's always been a bit of an interest based on its, its composition. We know comets are rare. The other thing about 46P is it's what we call a Jupiter family comet. So most, if you think of Halley's Comet, go into the edge of the solar system and kind of come back to the sun and do these big loops that take decades. This one only orbits every five and a half years because it goes out to about Jupiter, just quite to around Jupiter, and then comes back to the sun. So it kind of oscillates or goes in between the sun and Jupiter every five and a bit years. And so it's a unique cluster or family of comets that people want to understand more of. That's Dr. Brad Tucker from the Australian National University. And you're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The transit of Mercury and the lunar occultation of Saturn are down as some of the major astronomical highlights for sky watchers in 2019. Dr. Nick Lom, consultant curator of astronomy at the Powerhouse Museum Sydney Observatory, says the new year will also include a partial lunar eclipse from July. The main highlights will be the occultations of Saturn by the Moon. And occultation is when the Moon covers a planet or a star. And in 2019, there are four occasions when uh, Saturn will be covered by the Moon uh, during uh, evening hours. Is that very rare? It doesn't happen very often, and when it does happen, it is very, something that's fairly spectacular. It's something that uh, can be seen by eye and just by the unaided eye, and just seeing a planet just sort of wink out in the sky is quite spectacular. But uh, it's even better with the small telescope, and it can make uh, very nice uh, footage taken through a small telescope this of just uh, of the planet disappearing, or even just ordinary photographs as the planet, as the rings slowly get uh, covered by the moon. And then sometime later on, there is uh, the reappearance of, uh, of Saturn on the other side. And then we can see uh, the planet uh, reappear and slowly the rings appear, and then the planet itself and then the, and the, and the, rest, of the rest of the rings. So it's uh, quite an interesting event. There's a partial eclipse of the moon in July. About two-thirds of the moon will be in, uh, in shadow and that will be seen throughout Australia. It's not a total eclipse, so the moon is not going to turn uh, red, or obviously red as uh, it does with a total eclipse of the moon, but a partial eclipse is always interesting to see whether we can pick up that red from the Earth's atmosphere uh, landing on the moon. It's always a balance between the lit up part of the moon and the part which is not lit up, but uh, receiving light from the Earth's atmosphere, which is this red light and sometimes we can see or sometimes we can f just try and focus on uh, on the darker part of the moon and then pick up the uh, reddish color. Now usually lunar eclipses of some sort are associated two weeks before or two weeks after with a, a similar solar eclipse event. Are we in a position to see anything like that this year, next year? Uh, not in two weeks later um, but there is a partial of the eclipse of the sun in December. Unfortunately, it's only visible from the northern part of Australia. So it's visible from Darwin and the rest of uh, northern Australia. That's a partial eclipse. Just on half of the sun will be covered by, uh, by the moon. Again, it's interesting. It's an interesting to look at just to see that moon does cover the 
the sun, but people do have to take full precautions for eclipses because uh, it's always dangerous to look directly at the sun. So they do have to look at it with either suitable eclipse glasses or project image image to so that they do not damage their eyes. One of the most important references we use at Space Time to help us put the show together each week are the Sky Guides, which you bring out every year, and the 2019 edition has been released. Tell me about it. It's the 29th edition. It's a small paperback book, and the advantage of that is that people can take it with them uh, when they go to the country on holidays, put it in their backpack, have it with it or have it in the glove box of their car. It's easy to move around. This year, it's in the for 2019. It's a very spectacular cover, a photograph uh, taken by a photographer called Arvind Dyer. It's a photograph of a lake in uh, Cradle Mountain in uh, Tasmania. And you can see um, the moonlit mountain, and above it there is the southern sky. You can see the um, southern cross upside down. It's a little bit different to the way we normally imagine the southern cross. And next to it, above it, is the coal sack. Of course, it's in the Milky Way, part of the Milky Way. So it's a very spectacular cover. The book talks about the highlights for the year, which include there are planetary uh, conjunctions, Venus with Jupiter, which is the two brightest planets in the sky, occultations of Saturn. There's also a transit of Mercury coming up too in November, isn't there? That's right, it is. There is. It is a rare event. hasn't happened since 2006, I think, and it will not happen again until 2032. But unfortunate part of it, at least those of us in Australia, that it's only visible from New Zealand. But it's in November. It could be quite a nice time of the year for a holiday to New Zealand. Otherwise, as I said, to see a transit of Mercury would have to wait till 2032. And of course, to see the more famous kind of transit, the transit of Venus, we have to wait for over 100 years. That's Dr. Nick Lom, the consultant curator of astronomy with the Powerhouse Museum Sydney Observatory. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 